At least 30 million people of all ages and genders suffer from an eating disorder in the United States alone. You might be one of them, or you may know someone suffering from an eating disorder. My name is Sharon Betters, and I'm the host of this Help and Hope interview produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. In the next few minutes, my guest, Sarah Ivel, will share her own struggle with an eating disorder and how it reflected on her own view that she was never enough. Sarah shares her story in her book, Never Enough, Confronting Lies About Appearance and Achievement with Gospel Hope. Though you may have no experience with an eating disorder, the truths that Sarah shares apply to any place in our lives where we feel that we are not enough. I'm 71, and even in this season of life, there are days I despair of being enough, especially as my energy and ability to meet needs diminishes. So I want to highly recommend to you this book by Sarah. Sarah, thank you so much. As I've shared with you privately, the message of your book, it's just more than about eating disorders, as important as that is. It's about so many areas of our lives where we feel like we're never enough. And throughout the book, you give examples of even young people, of what they're basing their hope on. And I think that all of us as adults know that they live in a a culture that is painfully difficult as far as their own view of themselves go. There is such a need for this message for all ages. The battle against comparison and discontentment can be so fierce and you are so transparent in sharing your story. So welcome. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you for having me today. So tell me, why did you choose to be so vulnerable with your story? Well, I didn't want to be. And to be honest, there were a couple of times when I was writing this book that I wanted to tell my publisher, let's not do this. (laughs) But I was convicted by two passages I want to share with you. One is, well, they're both in 2 Corinthians. One is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And Sharon, I knew that to the extent that I share my suffering and my sin and shame and the comfort I receive from God in the midst of it, I would bring comfort to those in trouble by God's grace. And the more vulnerable I am, the more I can bring the message of hope and comfort Mm -hmm. to others. Oftentimes I have found that when I lead in vulnerability, the women around me are willing to be vulnerable. And the more we're honest with each other, the more we're able to apply gospel truth to specific situations. And also, about the same time the book was in its final round of edits, David Pallison, many of us know him well from his writings, wrote to the graduating class at Westminster, and his final comment said, My deepest hope for you is that in both your personal life and your ministry to others, you would be unafraid to be publicly weak as the doorway to the strength of God himself. And of course, you and I both know that's from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, when Paul says, my grace, well, when the Lord tells Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And that's just it. As we are willing to display our weaknesses, we magnify God's power and grace in our lives. Mm. 
That is an incredible statement that you just shared with us from David. I, I struggle with that myself of, you know, how, how much do we share about our stories in a way that points that person, that listener to Jesus. And it really is through humility and transparency. I think that that's a bridge that people are more willing to walk over rather than when we're prideful. So when you say in your book, when you talk about the word addiction, actually, when I think of the word addiction, I think in terms of alcohol or drug abuse, but you say that you were addicted to thinness and fitness. What, did, what do you mean by that? Well, I want to pick up on what you said, because it is true that in Scripture, especially in the Proverbs, um, drinking is often used as kind of the proverbial addiction. But Scripture also invites us to broaden that definition. So I think about 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, which says, For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And I knew in my life that thinness and fitness had overcome me and I was enslaved to it because I could ask myself just a very simple question. What do I have to have in order to feel significant or satisfied or successful? Or what's the first thing on my mind when I wake up, go to bed or go about my day? And over and over again, my answer would be, I had to eat perfectly according to my standards and exercise every day to feel good about myself. I planned my entire day around eating and exercise and I had to be in total control of what I was eating, never even letting anyone like my mom fix a meal for me. So I knew that these two things had overcome me, that I was enslaved to them. What are some of the lies that you've identified that fed into that addiction? Well, I identify five in the book, but I really want to just point out two to our listeners today because there were two that were at the very root of this. First was, I have to look like her, whoever she is, whether it's a supermodel on a magazine or billboard, or whether it's a sister in Christ in my church who is known for her beauty, or whether it's... Um, somebody in my school, one of my peers, I had to look like her in order to be beautiful. And the other one was my worth is based on my outward appearance or, or not only my outward appearance, but my outward performance. So I had these two. My worth is based on my outward appearance and my worth is based on my outward performance. And those two things really led me down the slippery slope of an eating disorder. Well, we live in a culture that um, definitely tells us that that is what gives us value and that is what gives us significance. For some reason, I'm on the mailing list of a, a magazine that is really designed for uh, young adult women. And I, I thought, well, I, I want to get inside the heads of my granddaughters. And I, so I'm going to check this out. And I, frankly, I have to tell you, it was terrifying to see what they're being fed as normal, you know, that, and, and the idea of the physical and achievement and the powers within yourself. And that is the message that keeps coming through to us. Uh, in I, I feel like in every medium, uh, social media, television, uh, wherever we go, and even in our own circles, and even in children's books, I noticed that, you know, when I read to our granddaughter, sometimes I'm a little uneasy about the role models that 
seem to be, they're the strong, uh, perfect, fit supergirls. And that's what they uh, are taught to, to strive for. So I, I appreciate what you're saying about those lies. And in your book, you talk about other lies that feed the addiction. And each one is so real and so practical. Well, how did your addiction affect your relationships to other people? I think it really introduced two things for me, isolation and conflict. There were some people I couldn't isolate myself from, of course. So think about my family. When my eating disorder began, I was in high school, so I was still at home with my parents. And I couldn't avoid my mom and dad or their eyes watching me and what I ate. And I was very uncomfortable with that. And so the more I could isolate myself, the more I wanted to. So I was an athlete, so many times I would have cross-country and basketball practices late at night, and I could avoid having dinner with them or any meals with them, so I could isolate myself. But if I couldn't isolate myself, then conflict was introduced into the relationship because they may press a little bit, why aren't you eating, or why are you eating only carrot sticks, or you need to have more, or things like that. And so... From those who would threaten me, I would want to pull away from anyone who would threaten my goals of perfect eating and exercise, I would want to isolate myself from. But even in good, well-meaning relationships, and I I did enjoy being around my friends and um, my youth group and um, other people that I, I loved, I did find a sense of wanting to isolate this area of my life from them, not wanting anyone to know what was going on in that area. Or if there were a few people I was willing to be vulnerable with, only sharing just enough so that too much conflict wouldn't be introduced. Mm. So those, those two things, isolation and conflict. Did those two things help open your eyes to your addiction or were there other things that helped you see, hey, there's something not right here? Well, along the way, certainly family and friends and their concern for me were were very important. I didn't like them. I didn't want their comments. I did not warmly invite them. But when they spoke, I heard what they said, and it was becoming kind of that little rock in my shoe I couldn't get rid of and was irritating to me, recognizing I have a problem. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, Sharon, it was God's word that opened my eyes that I was enslaved to a prison house. And the Lord was gracious and worked in my heart in such a way to bring me to the point that I wanted help. I wanted out and I wanted to be free. And at that point in time, I was able to reach out to family and friends and a nutritionist and um, a woman who discipled me and ask for help and also just dig deeply into God's word, pleading with the Lord, please deliver me from this addiction to thinness and fitness. I want it out of my life. Please help me to overcome these things. And so... Um, how long did it take for you to feel as though, okay, I've finally broken out of that cage? Well, I wish I could say it was a few months or a year, but I have to be honest and tell you it was about five years. 
that I was fighting hard, that I was making steps in the right direction, but then would slip back or that I would think I was finally free only to find out I wasn't or to really, okay, I've got this, um, to really understand, no, I'm still addicted to these lies or believing these lies and addicted to thinness and fitness. Um, so it was about five years, Sharon, that I, I battled hard and I was striving to put these lies behind me. And I had lots of really great things in place, but it really wasn't until I got to seminary where I was immersed in God's word on a daily basis and saw the entire story of scripture and was applying it and taking my thoughts captive and growing as a woman in the faith, a young woman in the faith that I, I really began to, to take those final steps to where now I can look back and say that was the final point where I, the Lord really delivered me. Well, in your book, you describe some of the practical things that you did, and I'd like to talk about those in a few minutes, but what I'm hearing you say and the message of your book was those practical things are good, but really without the heart being addressed, that this really is, it's, it's not even a performance issue, it's a heart issue. Um, so we need all those other pieces, like a good nutritionist and you know those kinds of things, the practical things, but the heart is where the change is going to take place. And, and I, I think, as, I think a, as a parent, that would be a really hard surrender uh, for, for a parent who is watching their child really fall apart and uh, feel as though if she would only eat, if she would only go to this doctor, that doctor, which all is important, but the root issue of the heart at which, over which we have no control in another person. But I appreciated what you said about the comments that you would hear that you didn't appreciate it, you didn't like it, but they were like a stone in your shoe that God was using to unsettle you and to make you uncomfortable with where you are. And I think that's hopeful too. So when we think someone isn't listening, maybe they're hearing more than what we realize that they're hearing. So... I think you've kind of answered this, but I'll, I'll give you an opportunity to expand on it maybe a little bit. How can we know that we are addicted, whether it's to uh, food or thinness or some other area? Because in your book, you, you address uh, numerous areas. You don't just address an eating disorder. I really think that question that I touched on earlier, Sharon, what, what do I have to have in order to feel significant? Or what do I have to have in order to feel satisfied? Or what do I have to have in order to feel successful? What is the thing that's on my mind when I wake up, when I go to bed, when I go about my day? What is that thing in your life apart from Christ, that you have to have in order to feel significant, satisfied, and successful. And oftentimes that helps a woman unearth perhaps what she's addicted to. That's identifying it, but, but you say that it's critical to get to the heart of the addiction, the root of the addiction. What, what do you believe is that root? Well, I believe, Sharon, that... I didn't primarily have an eating disorder, but I had a worship disorder. 
that I had taken Christ alone on the throne of my heart. And I had said, I need Christ plus thinness. I need Christ plus fitness to be satisfied or to feel significant or to feel successful about myself. And so what the Lord started to reveal to me over those five years was not that I primarily had an eating disorder, but that I had a worship disorder, that I that Christ was not enough for me, that I wanted man's approval, that I wanted to be beautiful in the eyes of the world, that I wanted to be successful in the eyes of the world. And uh, the culture was feeding me, you should be this, and how I could be that. And I was chasing after those things. And I didn't even know how much they were taking root in my heart and how much I started to worship those things. I thought I was in control of my eating and my exercise. And the Lord slowly revealed to me that I was enslaved to them. When someone hears us say we're adding something to Jesus, and then and they say, okay, tell me how. How, how do I make sure that it's nothing but Jesus, you know, that I'm not centered on those uh, imperfect things, those things that enslave me? Uh, I, let, me let me see if I can explain it a little better. After we lost our son, Mark, a dear young woman in my Bible study uh, lost her baby. Her baby was stillborn on the, d- the birth date, the day that her baby was, was, was to be born. Mm-hmm. And so she began meeting with me. And week after week, we would meet and we were talking about the character of God because it seemed as though we needed to get to that place of understanding his character because in those places you question his sovereignty and his love and all those things. And there were so many times I wanted to pick her up and move her like three years down the road because of the grief that she had to experience. She had to go through it. There was no way around it. If she was going to find a place of joy and purpose once more, she had to go through that grief. There weren't five easy steps to resolving the issue. And so I like for you to speak to that. And you have, you've touched on it of it wasn't quick. It was a long journey for you. But what were some of the things that were practical steps for you to really retrain your mind and to retrain your heart once you identified the issue was in your heart. I think the book of Galatians talks so much about justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Paul was talking to a people who had subtly bought into the lie that salvation was Christ plus something else. In their case, it was circumcision. But in my case, I wanted Christ plus achievement and a beautiful appearance. And so at the end of Galatians, Paul talks about what to do with those competing things. And I knew walking away from scripture that I had to declare an all-out war, (laughs) taking every thought captive to Jesus Christ. So I got rid of my scale because every time I weighed myself, it was a trigger for me. It was almost as if my scale talked to me. You're not good enough, Sarah. You're not thin enough yet. That's not the right number. So I got rid of it. I also learned to bounce my eyes from triggers. And for me, those triggers 
may have been things like billboards and magazine covers and like you spoke about that comes to your mailbox to get rid of those things, but also to bounce my eyes from maybe women who are at the pool and women who are at the mall who are my peers. I may even choose to bounce my eyes off of them if it's going to lead me to compare myself to them. I also kept a journal. I remember early on in this battle, I would keep a journal of lies I believed that came across my mind. So for example, I feel like I'm fat. And then on the other side of the page, I would counter it with truth. I'm I'm not fat, and God looks on the appearance of our hearts and not on our outward appearance, and I would have this list going through a journal of the lie and then the truth, the lie and then the truth, and that was very helpful for me. But more than that, Sharon, I, I want to emphasize today that we need to, instead of isolating ourselves, move into the covenant community. So having some sisters in Christ praying for me that I could tell them what was going on in my heart and life and ask them, would you be willing to pray for me and ask me the hard questions? And like I said before, I didn't want it. I didn't always warmly welcome it, but God had brought me to a place where I really did want somebody to ask me the hard questions. How are you doing, Sarah? Are you still enslaved to your appearance and achievements? And just having someone ask me the question, even if I didn't want the question asked, I really did deep down want someone to know, yes, I'm still struggling with this. And yes, I need you to pray for me and help bear this burden with me. Those are very good practical things, but you you also have touched on prayer and praise and the importance of putting those two together in uh, breaking an addiction. Can you explain? So I mentioned earlier, I really believe that ultimately an eating disorder is a worship disorder. So for me and for everyone who's addicted to something, whatever it is, replacing those gods and goddesses in our lives that are on the throne of our heart with Christ alone. And the key word is alone, because oftentimes we want to have Christ plus something else. But to replace those things that we have elevated so much in our lives that we're deriving our significance and security and satisfaction from them instead of Christ alone is of supreme importance. And so you do that through praising him right? You, you put Christ alone on the throne of your heart because you are going to worship him alone. You are worshiping him only. And so reading through the Psalms and praising him for who he is and what he has done dethrones those other things in your life that you are seeking to derive satisfaction and significance from. But prayer is just as important as praise. And of course, you can't draw a strict line between the two. But prayer keeps you in the posture of humility because it helps you to recognize your desperate need of God's power to uphold you and strengthen you against the temptation to worship, in my case, appearance and achievements. For me to get on my knees recognizes that I can't do this. I can't. I'm too weak. 
I need the Holy Spirit's power to uphold me and keep me strong so that I don't fall prey to the lies that my flesh or the world or the devil is feeding me. And so that prayer puts you in the proper position of humility saying, God, help me, free me. And you're then ready in that posture to praise him, that Christ alone is where your satisfaction and security and significance must lie. And Sarah, I know that you've said it, and uh, perhaps we need to keep saying it to, so that the, those who would say, okay, that's what I'm going to do, and they do it, but they still have the struggle that this is a lifetime. This is a lifelong practice of prayer and worship. It's not a pill, you know, it's not a magic potion, but it is the antidote to the idea of Jesus plus something else. Uh, nothing but Jesus, Christ alone, and it's daily, over and over and over again. Well, I think about uh, parents who have um, children who are struggling with the culture, the lies about appearance and their weight and their power and all of that. What, what counsel would you give to these parents that, so that they can help their children combat the messages of the culture? I would say four things, Sharon. Um, first of all, and, and some people may say, well, of course, but number one, pray for your child. It really is true that we are powerless to change our children, but Christ changes them in his time and in his way. And so our hope is not in our ability to change our children. Our hope is not even in our children changing. Our hope is in Christ who can change our children when and how he wills to change them. And so don't ever underestimate the power of prayer. Plead before the Heavenly Father on your knees for for your child um, and, and plead that he would deliver them and protect them from these lies. So that's number one, pray, pray for your child. Number two, talk to them, talk often and, and openly with them. I think sometimes parents are scared to death to talk to their children because of what they might find out to be true, or they're afraid that their children will push them away. And I've already shared with you, I really didn't want my mom to talk with me about the things she was seeing in my life, and I wanted to push her away, but I just want to encourage moms and dads out there, maybe sisters or brothers listening, I heard what she said, and I heard her concern and her love and her voice, and I would just tell you, keep talking to them openly with them, maybe pray with them over these lies that they're believing and keep that open channel of communication. So pray and talk. The third thing I would encourage you to do is walk with your child through it. Don't leave her alone. I, she probably won't admit this to you or he won't admit this to you, but it's terrifying to be enslaved to an addiction. At some point, I think every addict realizes, I don't have power over these things anymore. I really am enslaved to them. And so walking with your child, letting her or him know you are there is so important um, that you're not going to walk away from her. And then finally, I would say not only pray, talk and walk with them, but engage with others in your church about it. I hear women all the time tell me they're afraid to open up and share deep struggles that they're going, going through. 
And I think it's so important to engage with others in your church, a couple of sisters, maybe you don't want a a large group and that's okay, but two or three other sisters, or um, if you're a man listening to some brothers in Christ that you can really pray with, who can help you through this and bear this burden with you is so important. Mm -hmm. So those, those four things, pray for your child, talk often and openly with your child, walk with your child through it and engage with others in your church about it. A few safe people who you know will keep this issue safe and confidential and love, love your child with you. You know, Sarah, as you were talking, I thought that's good advice, no matter how old your children are. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, our children are almost, they're getting closer to 50 than 40. And those four things are critical to keeping an open relationship and to building a relationship. So that is, that's really good advice, good counsel. Well, as we're wrapping up our time, I'd like for you to imagine that you're sitting across the table from one person who is struggling with an addiction. And let's say it's an eating disorder and she's realizing it, but she does not know what to do. She doesn't know how to, how to start. What counsel would you give her? I want to take you to John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So I want to tell you, dear sister, your hope is not in being able to change, but in Christ who changes you. Look to Christ far more than you look at yourself. Remember who he is and what he has done. And in response, give him your devotion and your worship. This worship is especially important on Sundays when you have the privilege and the opportunity to be in the midst of the covenant community, a community that should be a safe place for you to share your heart and seek help from your leaders and sisters in Christ. There in the midst of that community, you will find people who will pray for you and talk with you and walk with you through this and encourage you as you battle against these lies. Sarah, thank you so very much for your vulnerability in our conversation and in your book. And for those of you who are listening, I am Sharon Betters, and I have been talking with Sarah Ival, who you can learn more about at her website at Sarah Ival, S-A-R-A-H-I-V-I-L-L.com. And if you're riding around in a car and you can't write that down, you can go to our website. Uh, where we will have this contact information about Sarah as well as her newest book. When you go to markinc.org, that's M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org, you are also going to find numerous resources like this one, and they're all free. We cover crises like terminal illness, grieving, caregiving, adultery, forgiveness, chronic illness, caring for children with special needs. It's a very broad range of life crises that are often experienced in isolation. And we even have a series for military families. We love hearing from listeners who tell us, I've never experienced this particular crisis, but hearing this story encourages me to know that the Lord will be gracious and faithful to me when I do face my own crisis. If any of our resources have encouraged you, would you consider giving so that we can continue to offer them for free? We are able to offer them for free because people who believe in our vision of offering help and hope want to make sure that these resources get into as many hands as possible. You can help us continue to offer these for free. 
by safely giving at markinc.org. That's M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org. And please know that no gift is too small. Thank you so much for listening.